You're listening to the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the world-leading tech incubator, the DMZ. In this podcast, each episode brings in the movers and shakers of the world to cover leadership mentality, tips for business owners, and much, much more. So without further ado, let's get into it. Here's your host, Canada's leading podcaster, CPA and business strategist, Robert Gold, managing partner at Bennett Gold LLP. Once again, from high atop the Movers and Shakers Podcast Center in Toronto, live and in the morning, we're way off to the north. I can see Big Shoot, Ontario. I'm Robert Gold, Managing Partner of Bennett Gold LLP, Chartered Accounts and CPAs in Toronto. This is going to be amazing. I'm really excited. Today, we have Mark LaFleur with us. Mark is the CEO and co-founder of True Local, truelocal.ca. Mark, welcome to the Movers and Shakers Podcast. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you have a great story to tell. It all starts back in 2016. January 2016, you announced over Facebook, hey, I'm quitting my job and I'm starting a business, taking risks, venturing out into the unknown. Go fast forward five years, 2021, five-year anniversary, became extra special because you announced that you've been acquired for $17 million. So starting from the day you decided to quit your job, pursue entrepreneurship, can you give us an overview of the journey that took you from launching and scaling to selling. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. It actually goes back a little further than 2016. I feel like most entrepreneurs' journeys kind of start that way. You know, I've been trying to get into business since about 2012. So it all started out at the University of Waterloo, um, and my degree was in health. You know, in first year, I wanted to be a dentist, and after I saw my grades, I decided that was not a, a viable career choice for me. So, you know, kind of just went through the motions, you know, really enjoyed university life. You know, I came from a small town, so just being around all the people and being around all the new experiences was awesome. But I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until second year came around. And I still didn't have a passion for work or anything, but I didn't know that I wanted the freedom. I wanted to be able to be successful. I wanted to say that I was going to be successful and do something unique. And I'll never forget when I heard that Snapchat got offered $3 billion by Facebook. And that like completely changed my world because at the time, I didn't even know what a million dollars was, right? You know, I was just a second year university kid. If I could get, you know, a couple of dollars to go to the bar on the weekend, I was a hero. So to even conceptualize what a million dollars was and then to hear that this app, right? And, and once again, not understanding business or understanding what goes in behind the scenes on these products. You just think it's a toy that some people made. So it really kind of opened my eyes to what was going on behind the scenes and the hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in this technology and the thousands of developers and the millions of users that they reach on a regular basis. And it, it struck a chord with me. And that's where I think the fire was born in terms of wanting to be a successful founder. From there, fast forward a couple of years, and then two failed startups later, we did an instant messaging app called Tell, and then we did a sharing economy platform called DashTask, both of which ended up failing, but a lot of really good learnings came out of that. And when it was time to do my my third one, I started looking and, and trying to understand, you know, why weren't these other ones successful? And really what it boiled down to is the fact that I was always treating them like projects. It was always nights and weekends. Um, it was never 100% of my commitment. So I decided that if I was going to really take a go at this, I needed to commit to it full time. So it was January 4th. 2016, decided to quit my job, made a post about it. And it is crazy because like you said, literally exactly five years later, um, the company was sold for $17 million. So what happens in between then is a roller coaster, like any other founder would say. And I think you start going through the years, right? I think now when I, what I talk about, I talk about it in years. So year one really was just about us trying to understand how to run the business and see if this even made sense. You know, we felt like there was a need, you know, people were looking for value added meat products that whether meat be the biggest part of people's budgets or not, it's the most expensive thing at the grocery store and it's highly controversial. And there weren't a lot of players in it. 
So this is a market opportunity here that we felt pretty well positioned to tackle. Once again, in between those startups, I was working full time at, at a door-to-door meat sales company. So I had this weird experience with project management, brand development through the previous startups, and then I had this weird skill set in meat. So kind of combine those, and then you know another uh, buddy of mine that was working at the company at the same time, uh, Greg Quell, my co-founder. We just kind of got together, and we're like, I think we can do this better ourselves. So year one was really about just trying to get value out of meat products to people, and we realized that the best possible business model for that was going to be a subscription-based business model. Obviously, it's a product that is consumable, so people are going to run through it. So why don't we do, why don't we do this on a subscription basis? Year one is like any other startup. You know, it's it's a grind. Your results don't match the input that you are doing to the business. And what I mean by that is that most people thrive and survive off the work they put in being proportionally correlated to the results that they get. And, you know, you work harder, you get better results. But as a founder and and being in those early years, it's the complete opposite. The harder you work, you're still just barely starting to get that flywheel spinning, right? So that was an interesting time for sure. Um, and then, you know, kind of looking back on it now, it, it's crazy to think, you know, how far we've come. Of course, throughout those years, we expanded into Alberta and then we expanded into BC. We were fortunate enough to expand into Illinois. And then just recently, actually last week, we've expanded into Quebec as well. So very exciting times. Well, it's pretty interesting to me. We didn't define what true local does at the beginning, and that's T-R-U local, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L dot C-A. But I love on the website, simple monthly meat delivery. And the idea of subscribing to meat is kind of like, whoa, that is about as off the wall as it gets, but it sure makes sense. That's for sure. And the whole idea of selling meat online must have been a bizarre concept when you first started. Now you've got great demand from suppliers and consumers. Revenues ballooned, I understand, 3,700% over three years. Quebec, Alberta, BC, you say, also the states. So what is it about True Local that clicked as a concept to people? How do you credit success? So there's a couple things, the business and the brand, and then also our ability to create a community. So I think it's very easy for people to now accept that branding is a very strong part of what makes a business successful. When we actually talk to people, people really struggle with describing what a brand is. And to me, it's very simple. A brand is how people feel when they think about your company. That's what it is. And to me, it's very easy to create a cool brand. It's not very hard to go onto Fiverr and get a couple of logos created and then, you know, go on some sort of platform and get someone to create a website for you. And you got a cool color scheme and a cool tagline and it looks really good and people want to get into it. The challenge comes when you want to try to create an organization and a business that lives up to that brand and that mission. So I think for us, you know, our goal has always been we want to connect people as close as possible to local producers and suppliers within their province. Now, that might sound really simple, and it is when you're trying to deal with one producer or one supplier or you're trying to deal with one specific city, but it becomes a lot bigger when you're trying to do it across the province. And I think that's where people were getting very behind what we were trying to do. Like our the whole idea was that we want to develop regional supply chains within the provinces that people can shop with producers in that area. It wasn't too hard for people to want to get behind that. And as the years went on, we were able to live up to that as a business. And then, of course, on the flip side, it was the community building. And I think a lot of people now really focus on volume marketing. They really just want to touch every single person possible. They want to get their ads in front of as many eyes as possible. And they don't really focus on nurturing the customers that they do get and creating a community around them. And that was kind of the opposite approach that we took for us. Building that community was everything. Building a loyal customer base was everything. So we always made sure that when people did join us, we did everything in our power to make sure to go above and beyond 
um, and try to exceed their expectations. So I think a combination of creating that brand that people could get behind and a mission people could get behind and then trying to you know do the best to live up to your customers' expectations part of why we've been successful. You know, the whole idea of branding always strikes me as strange. And somebody taught me a long time ago that branding is for big entities like Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola can't get to know Mark. But I can get to know Mark, so Mark doesn't need a brand. But True Local can't really get to know me because you're becoming bigger and bigger. So True Local, like Coke, needs a brand. I run a local firm of chartered accountants and CPAs. I believe in branding, but we're all about relationships. We build our business because it's a personal service business on relationships. Although we might have a brand, it's different. Can you contrast branding from the perspective of an operating entity like you or Coca-Cola, to use my example, and, say, branding or relationship marketing that professional service people or engineers or chiropractors or accountants might have? What's the difference between those two? Uh, kind of like what I was talking about before, like a brand being the way people feel when they think about your company. Like when you think about McDonald's, before you even see those golden arches, you feel a certain type of way. When you think about Nike, before you see that crest or you see the Nike sign or you see just do it, you feel a certain type of way. And that to me is something that is built, an initial impression someone gets from the brand and then the repetitive action that the company does to live up to that expectation. If you don't live up to that expectation, you start to create this negative feedback. When you think about the brand, when you feel what that brand is doing to you, you start associating it with negative connotations. And on the flip side, when you start overachieving or you start over-delivering, people build this positive sense with the brand. And it can be a positive sense with when they hear the company name or when they see the icon or it could be anything like that. But to me, that's why it's so important. It's so long-term because it's a feeling. To change the way people feel, you have to do that on an ongoing basis. You can't mess up once. Of course, there's a whole conversation to be had around, you know, when you do mess up, because mess ups are going to happen for a customer and what you can do to make sure to bring them back and go above and beyond. But just, I'm generalizing. And then when it talks to relationships, to me, that's it right there. It's a relationship. You're building a relationship with an individual. You are building that one-to-one relationship with that person and yourself as opposed to the entity, as opposed to the business. And I would argue for there to be a sake, you know, there's, there's personal brand that goes into that, right? How do people feel when they think about you, right? So I think that it's almost like branding is a relationship that is being built with the consumer, all of the consumers. So I think that's kind of a way to look at it, more of a business to a consumer versus an individual to a consumer. Well, I think you're absolutely right. The way people feel about you or your company, that's your personal brand or that's your corporate brand. I think you're absolutely right. Let's move on. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's been locked down for almost a year now. Slowly but surely, we're coming back. How did this change the demand for true local services? Yeah, you know, we've got to take a moment here to, anytime we talk about the pandemic, just what's going on, because I don't know if enough of small businesses are getting a platform to discuss what's going on. You know, for us, we've been obviously fortunate, you know, demand for any sort of online food has gone through the roof, but left, right, and center, I'm seeing friends and other co-founders that have become, or other founders that have businesses literally watching their 10-year business get crippled because of lockdowns on gyms or whether it might be a restaurant. So I'm really concerned looking over the next year or so that obviously we need to be focusing on the health, the health issues surrounded by COVID, but I think that we're sweeping under the rug a lot of serious issues that are coming down the line. And I think that Whenever this starts to lift and people start looking at the damage that's been caused, I'm actually scared to see what happens to a lot of these small business owners. Like even just the other day, I had to talk to a friend who's looking at shutting down their gym after a very long period of time. So that's something I always just want to kind of bring attention to. For us, once again, obviously, we were in a fortunate position. People were looking for this. We were deemed an essential service, but that came with its own challenges. We almost tripled in size over the course of six weeks. And for any founder out there, they know what it's like to try to scale a business, even incrementally. 
So for us, it was really something that we're well set to deal with, but we deal with crisis on a regular basis. Once again, something that founders can relate to. Every day we're kind of in crisis mode. Now we haven't dealt with a crisis quite the size of a global pandemic, but when it did happen, the lockdowns did happen, we were able to kind of sprint into an emergency mode quickly. And the biggest things we had to deal with were locking down our supply chain, so ensuring that we actually had product to feed the, the Canadian families that were relying on us to get them food. And fortunately, once again, our model really led to that. So with us, we use a distributed network of quite a few local producers, suppliers, and farmers. So we don't have any of our volume centralized to one location. Whereas when you look at the national supply chains, you talk about these meat shortages. But what is happening is when one of these meat plants gets shut down and it's delivering to a good chunk of Canada, that's when you run into these issues. So because we were diversified, we had a lot of, we were fortunate not to run into supply chain issues there. Not only that, but what a lot of people fail to recognize is that there's a lot of packaging material that goes into getting these products delivered. So we had to ensure that things like our corrugate, things like our coolers, things like our ice and gel packs, all this stuff was locked down so that we didn't run into issues where, okay, we have enough meat to supply people, but we don't have enough packaging to get it out to them. So that was interesting. And that's something that was eye-opening to show how vulnerable businesses can be. And then, of course, taking it one step further was we had this increased demand, but we had to increase our team. So our office has been working from home since last March. However, fortunate for us, we had such a tight-knit team, but you know, we had everybody coming in at the warehouses and the fulfillment centers to make sure that these boxes were being packed. Well, how do we hire in a safe manner. So really safety became our number one priority at these fulfillment centers where back in the day it was your, your kind of your typical safety protocol, but now we've had to step that up and that was the learning curve as well. So it's been a, a very interesting time to say the least from over the past year. To me, the biggest challenge in everything you just said, besides locking down the, the, the significant components of your supply chain, including dry ice, I suppose, and other packaging materials, but the HR component had to be a challenge. One, it's a pandemic. You've got to get people to come in. Some are working remotely. But you have all these new people that you have to fit in. What was the biggest HR challenge? Was it that it zapped the resources from the people that were already there? Is it it stretched resources to the limit when it came to HR? What was the big HR challenge? Honestly, I think just being a startup, the big HR challenge was going through the unknown. Like, this is something for us that we've never dealt with in how do we do interviews and bring people into the warehouse in a safe manner, right? It was a really difficult time. And I think that also, at the same time, a lot of people coming in not knowing how long they wanted to be with the business because we had a lot of people coming in during the time that had lost their jobs and were looking to go right back to work once their jobs opened back up. So we were trying to find transparency as possible to be like, hey, look, we have no problem hiring you guys, but we need to know, are you guys going back? Because we put you on a contract and have you guys come in and do the work. So I think that was just interesting navigating that. It was all happening in real time. Things were changing on a daily basis. So I would argue just, you know, making sure they were putting the right people in the right places and getting an understanding and then also just being there as a bridge until they can get their jobs back, I think was an interesting, uh, interesting, interesting to deal with in general. And I imagine it's still evolving, especially as we have changing lockdown rules and nothing is consistent anymore. Are you finding the inconsistent government dictates to be hurdles that you weren't otherwise anticipating in the middle of all this? Yeah, I think it's kind of frustrating. I think, look, I wouldn't want the government's job. So let me start by saying that. I'm also not a politician. I'm an entrepreneur. So with what's happening right now with the pandemic and the lockdowns, every single person has a different story and every single person's story is valid. If you talk to first responders, if you talk to frontline workers, if you talk to essential workers, if you talk to teachers, if you talk to parents, if you talk to politicians, if you talk to founders, if you talk to anybody, they're going to have a different uh, opinion on what's going on. All I can do is speak to my perspective. And I think that at the end of the day, it's difficult to follow rules when they're changing all the time. And I think that we're in a situation right now where we're fortunate to be essential and things haven't really changed for essential workers. So we're just doing everything that we can to make sure that we're keeping our fulfillment centers safe, following the rules when they come down. 
I think that it's going to be an interesting time over the next little while as they've loosened these restrictions. I'm interested to see, you know, if cases spike again, are we going to go back into lockdown? Are we going to find a way to live with it? Are we going to start looking at the other factors and what's going on in terms of once again the economy? You know, what other sort of damage is being done with these lockdowns? The, the amount of friends that I've been talking to that mention mental illness, not them personally, but just that I've had experiences with mental illness, suicide, you know, these rates are going through the roof. So I think it's tough. I think, like I said, I wouldn't want the government's job right now. they got to try to please everybody, which is very difficult. So it's, it's tough. On the other hand, a true local, you probably try to please everybody anyway. So one of the biggest things I was going to say is our director of consumer experience is always such a huge advocate for a book called uh, Hug Your Haters. And it discusses what happens when you deal with a customer, obviously, who, you know, has been, they didn't have less than stellar service, whatever it might have happened, and they're just losing their minds. And that happens a lot, right? Especially with how many customers that we deal with. And I think that a lot of people initially, what they want to do is they want to go and say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And that'll never happen again. And that's a total huge mess up. The thing to understand is that, you know, that's a, that's a false promise to make. And I don't think people should make those promises because when you run a business, you're going to have issues. You're going to run into situations. The box might be delayed. Maybe the contents weren't packed properly. There could be a million different reasons why something happens. And sure, you know, when you're dealing with companies that have a hundred million dollars in funding and state-of-the-art facilities, maybe they can get pretty close to perfect. But let's, you know, not forget here that we have 50 employees across the country and, you know, our first 15 were friends and family, you know, so it's, we're definitely small by uh, comparison means. So for us, what we just try to do is really tell people like, hey, look, judge us on how we deal with the situation because guaranteed every single person that's ever had an issue with us um, ends up reach out to our consumer experience team and they're absolute rock stars and we do everything we can to please them as much as possible. So I always say to people, you know, I'm not going to make any promises that we won't mess up again. There's always an issue that can come up. But what we will do is make sure that everything is done right by you if there's ever been a problem. And the book really goes into a lot about how you're the angriest customers and where a lot of businesses wanted to shut down and say, okay, sure, here you go, see you later. That just fuels the fire. Whereas if you actually just take a second to listen to what the issue is and acknowledge that there is an issue, you can turn these individuals who had a horrible experience into one of your biggest advocates because they're not used to getting that type of service from other places. They're kind of just treated like a number. Whereas, like I said before, with us, it's always been about creating a community. So if someone had a less than stellar experience, we don't look to just rush them off or, or brush them off even. We want to see what happened, see what went wrong, and ensure them that we're going to take care of everything and there's nothing to worry about. And I think the key there is just you can't take it personally. You're there to serve. You don't take it personally. Let's talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial development, about being a black founder. So let's, let's just take a step back and talk about your development. Your story's quite different. It's quite relatable, and it's empowering for many young folks, especially for black youth who are aspiring entrepreneurs themselves. You went, I understand, from barely graduating high school becoming the CEO of a dragon-back business, make a successful exit, as we talked about, getting acquired for $17 million by Emerge. How do you think your experience as a black man have helped shape the successful founder you are today, or doesn't it make a difference at all? You're just a successful founder. Yeah, I think it definitely made a difference. One of the biggest things that we're trying to do here is, for me, you know, I grew up in a small town, and I didn't have any access to entrepreneurship, and this was a, a fine town. You know, we didn't grow up with a lot of money. Grew up, pulled my shoes kind of thing. You know, always had a roof over my head. My mom was always taking care of me. My dad was always there. They were separated at the time, but still, like, spent a lot of time with both of them. By all intents and purposes, I, I lived a good life. And I always say that it's crazy that even someone like myself didn't have an opportunity to get exposed to business at an early age. What happens in real poverty and in places where there's real poverty? And of course, you know, a disproportionate amount of black people are suffering from poverty in most cities. At what point did they get exposed to business? Like at what point did they have an opportunity to realize that there's more than, hey, look, if you don't go to school, if you fill out of school, or if you don't become a pro athlete, or if you don't become a rapper, there's nothing for you. 
at what point in time do they get to start seeing that, hey, you know what, business is a viable path for me. And that can only happen when you have more black CEOs and more black directors and more black founders on the covers of these magazines and sitting at the boardroom table and being funded by venture capitalists. I think at the end of the day, you know, being a founder is all about dealing with adversity. It's all about problem solving. It's all about dealing with getting punched in the face every single day and finding a way around that. And I would argue that black people and POCs and and any minority deals with that more than most, which to me means that it's not hey, is there a room for black people or people of color in business? I think, if anything, we're better prepared to deal with the challenges of running a business because we deal with adversity our entire lives. I'm going to draw you an analogy, and I think you're absolutely right. And years ago, there were not that many women in business. And I've been an advisor to small and entrepreneurial, medium-sized businesses for years. And I often had to speak to women's groups and saying, you have a couple of strikes going against you. One, the lenders are probably all male. They're probably going to ask you if your husband can sign the loan document. And there was always hurdles that women had to hit. And yet, women in business were five times more successful than men because they hit those hurdles and they developed a thick skin. They trained. They learned. They did all the stuff they had to to be a step ahead. And I think you're absolutely right. Entrepreneurs and founders face adversity every single freaking day. And if you've got the tenacity and the temerity to overcome those hurdles, and if they started because you were a minority population and had to develop thick skin, if you will, I think you're 100% right. Ethnic-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, my analogy from the past, far more strength than if an average person goes out to start a business without having to develop the thick skin and, and the fortitude. I think you're absolutely right. I read the other day that True Local launched the Equal Opportunity Business Grant. You awarded four black-owned businesses $5,000 each to put towards their business. Let's talk about the initiative and the recognition that you've received as a result of it. How has that worked out? I got to start by saying I can't take any of the recognition for that at all. It's a true local initiative. It was easy for me to approve. What ended up happening actually was as a founder, my entire life in the past five years has been straight tunnel vision on the business. There could be a global pandemic, and still to this to the moment, you're just 100% focused on the business. You kind of have blinders to what's going on in the rest of the world. So what was going on with BLM last year and George Floyd, it wasn't until actually two of my team members came up to me and said, Mark, like, what are we doing about this? Like, what stand and position are we taking? Because it was ridiculous. You're a black founder. We have a platform. We need to say something. And it wasn't until someone actually came up to me and put it in my face. I was like, oh, my God, you know, of course we have to do something about this. So we started looking and seeing what we were able to contribute. And we started seeing that there was a lot of amazing businesses, a lot of amazing people donating to a lot of amazing charities already. So for us, we figured, you know what, if we want to put some of our money to work, why don't we do something that we can actually have an impact on somewhere that we see it directly and some that that's you know near and dear to my heart. And with entrepreneurship, that kind of seemed the easy route where we could have the biggest impact on something that's near and dear to my heart. And for a lot of the people at True Local, and it made sense that we tried to give business owners an opportunity to apply for these grants. We came up with $10,000 to create two grants that we were going to award to Black-owned businesses. And then one of our shipping partners, actually, ShipperBee, uh, saw what we were doing and matched the donation of $10,000. So we were actually able to get four or $5,000 business grants together to award to businesses. And all we did pretty much was say, hey, submit your video, give us a pitch, and we'll go through it. And we'll award it based on, on where we feel it could have the most impact in the community. Can you talk about the effect that that funds had on those businesses? Yeah, we ended up um, awarding the grant to Girl Gang Strong, O Foods, Bliss Skateboard Shop, and Songi Fitness. It was actually crazy because 
we didn't realize what it was like to watch a lot of pitches and a lot of videos and how difficult it would be to choose. For a lot of these small businesses, $5,000 is a lifeline, whether it be inventory, it's the ability to potentially bring on a contractor, or maybe look at the little extra you need to bring on um, an extra team member. It could be for marketing to acquire more customers. It can go a long way. And I like to think that, you know, especially when I was starting off the business, that that would have made a big difference in my business. So for us, we're definitely looking to do this as a recurring initiative. We don't have any announcements yet on that, but this just had such a good impact. And I think uh, it was very important. So we're going to look to do that again. Yeah, I'm excited for you being able to do that again. And I'd like to think that other companies would join you. We ran an entrepreneur-focused contest a couple of years ago, and it was kind of like the business plan competition for the rest of us. We gave away a MacBook Air, and it was we met some great entrepreneurs. And you're right there. Their hands are out for any bit of help, advice, funding, a hurdle that you can help them get over. It's founders need and entrepreneurs need so much from the community and so much from guys like yourself that have been there. Let's talk about first-time founders. I know that you've given great advice on LinkedIn about what you see as the truth about being a first-time founder, work-life balance, managing relationships with the people in your life, making it a priority, I read, to wake up early, which I don't necessarily buy into. Are these pieces of advice that you were given early on, or did you learn these things through your own experience? These were 100% learned through experience. I go through a ton of books in, over the course of a year now, of course, through, through audiobooks. I spend a lot of time in the car. But I, the first time I ever read a book, business was probably in second year in business. So it's, I didn't even know anything about business before I got into it. And a lot of the stuff that I've pulled out of being a first-time founder, you can't teach that stuff in a book. Because a lot of the planning that you want to put in place or a lot of the best practice or a lot of the uh, tricks and hacks that you might have just don't translate well into real life. Once again, like I said before, Really, when you're a founder, you're just a professional problem solver. So for me, these were just learnings that I noticed that seemed to be a little more counterintuitive or a little bit more on the side of how to maintain your sanity and what you can expect as a first-time founder. One of the things I talk about is letting your friends and family know. Um, you know, being a first-time founder, you are going to be 100% committed to your business. It's going to take up every single thought that you have for at least the first year. And if it doesn't, you're definitely decreasing the chances of being successful, at least in my personal opinion. And what that means is that you will not be able to pick up the phone every single time a friend calls, or you will miss a birthday, or you might even miss the holidays. And to me, having your friends and family know to expect that could be the difference between a complete and total meltdown of your relationships or them being there for you when you need them the most. So just letting them know that, hey, look, I'm going on this journey. This means a lot to me. It's very important to me, and I'm willing to commit everything I have to this for a certain period of time. I'm asking for your support and understanding. You know, people are really going to appreciate that down the line. They might be there and support you longer throughout that. It might save some of your relationships. On the time frame side of it, too, you know, I think that because it takes up so much energy, it has to, you really should have a defined timeline that you're willing to grind this hard for before you're like, hey, look, I need to reevaluate. Because if you don't have that timeline, then it starts looking like an endless tunnel. And that can be scary. You have to have some semblance of hope as a, as a first-time founder. And if you don't have a timeline, you just don't know how long you're going to be doing this for. And you can be grinding for a very long period of time and without an end goal inside, it can be very tricky. So those are some of the ones that I noticed made a big difference for me. And just because I had such a good relationship, um, you know, I, I've always had a close group of friends and they supported me throughout the entirety of the business. Luckily, my mom and my dad, 100% supportive of what I was doing, even when I would miss holidays and things like that. My girlfriend obviously works for True Local. She's our, she was our third employee at the Director of Consumer Experience. So having her uh, with an understanding of what was going on with the business, you know, we've been together for nine years. So making sure that she was bought in as well made all the difference in the world. So I think that, that those are some things that are really important as you're going through the journey. Are there three pieces of advice building on what you just said that you would give to any of our listeners across the country, any aspiring entrepreneurs, 
current entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs that are a step beyond, there's a long tail business. What are the three pieces of advice that you would give them to help them succeed the way you think that you have succeeded? So I don't have three individual pieces, but I have one big piece that Perfect. I think is the most important thing that probably could be broken down into a couple other pieces. But at the end of the day, there's this sort of work-life balance, anti-Elon Musk sort of movement going on up there. And that's totally fine. You know, I think that there are situations where work-life balance is important. However, I do tend to see that a lot of these people saying this typically are either already incredibly successful so they've already made it, maybe it's their second or third business, or they are not in the first-time founder category. So to me, when it comes time to having a work-life balance, if this is your first time running a business, or it's your first business that has traction, and you've put everything into it, and if the business goes under, you go bankrupt, and you have to fire, I think that it's okay to give up some of that work-life balance to, to commit to the business. And where I'm going with this is that the biggest piece of advice I can have is that you need to understand that as a first-time founder, you are not a CEO, you're not a founder, you're not a CTO, you're not a CMO, it doesn't matter. What you are is a professional problem solver. That's it. Because all of the work you put in, all of the business plan stuff that you do, all of the things that you think are going to be big wins are going to get blown up on a daily basis, and you are going to be required to look at the resources you have, look at the team you have, and look what you have available to you to try to get through that next problem. And if you can't do that, if you think that because you set a track down, you set a business plan down, that you can follow that to the T every single day, week, month, year, it's going to blow up in your face and you won't be able to navigate those situations. So understanding as a first-time founder that you just need to be a professional problem solver rather than a boss or a marketer or a salesman or whatever it might be, it will give you a way, way, way better chance at success. If you have a mindset that every single day you're going to deal with a problem, well, when those problems arise and you wake up in the morning, you're not in the mindset of, okay, look, I just raised that money, so things are going to be better now, or I just hired that employee, so things are going to get a lot easier, and then you wake up in the morning and you just finished raising that money and you have a new fire to deal with and it just drains you. Instead, what will happen is you're going to wake up in the morning and you're going to understand that this is the journey you chose to be in. You're at war on a daily basis. And this is a situation where when you pick up your phone and you see that there's a fire to deal with, okay, you're already somewhat primed to deal with that. You don't, you're not depressed because, okay, I was hoping for an easy day. You're not in a situation where you were expecting something to be easy and it didn't, so it drains your energy. You're in a position now that you are more equipped than you would have been otherwise to deal with this problem. And if you compound that daily, because you have problems daily, or at the very least weekly, that could be the difference between getting you to the next stage. You know... I have to ask, now that you've had this, not an exit, but an acquisition, exit's a whole other story, what's next for you? What's next for the team? And what opportunities does all of this bring to True Local? To be honest, you know, the focus is still 100% True Local. You know, we couldn't be happier with Emerge. Um, getting to meet Gassan and finally finding an acquirer that really understood that we wanted to run the business the way we wanted to run the business. A lot of acquirers say that they're founder-friendly, but really, you know, with e-com, we were there from, you know, the get-go, right? They obviously just listed publicly on the TSXV under the e-com ticker, and they understood that, you know, we still have a lot to accomplish with the company. We don't have to sell. We're in a situation right now where if we're going to look to find a partner, we want to find somebody who's going to allow us to continue those missions. We want to keep developing Canada's regional supply chain. We want to keep developing the team. That's my own personal um, goals right now is working with the management and just I love the team and I love, you know, what we do on a daily basis. So 
really finding a partner that understood that was important. So for the foreseeable future, you know, this is it. You know, we're still doubling down on True Local. We've got, like I said, we just launched in Quebec, so lots of exciting things coming down the pipe. You know, True Local's goal has always been to connect people to the source, and now compounding that, we want to really be the leaders at developing Canada's regional supply chain. That is an aspiration. Hey, i got to ask you a question. This is one of my favorite parts of our Movers and Shakers podcast, the rapid-fire questions. You ready? Let's do it. Books or movies? Movies. Favorite podcast? Masters of uh, the Joe Rogan experience oh. and Masters of Scale. PC or Mac? Mac. I know the answer to this one. Early bird or night owl? Early bird, <laughs> but out of necessity, not out of the, not out of the water. Not out of desire. Best homemade dish? Best homemade dish would be honestly it's not a dish, but it's my mom's homemade cookies. I consider it a dish. Uh, I like that. First real job? First real job was at Blockbuster Video. Um, rest in peace. That's pretty funny. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a truck driver when I was growing up. A truck driver or a bricklayer? One item that you would never leave the house without? My bag. Favorite app? And everything that's in it. And everything that's in it. I'm not sure that counts. Favorite <laughs> app other than your own? My favorite app is the Pocket app. I love it. I'm a, I, one thing, I'm a huge reader, um, even though I do love movies as well. Um, and finding all these articles online, I like to kind of categorize them. I like to just have them for the future, so I save them in my Pocket app. How do you relax? I relax by watching TV. What's your favorite Netflix show right now? My favorite Netflix show right now, I actually just finished watching Apollo, which was awesome. Did not understand what went into going to the moon for the first time, and that Saturn V rocket is phenomenal to see. They did this big recreation of all the footage, and I would highly recommend watching it. The best part about being a founder, what really appeals to you? Honestly, you're just in complete and total uh, control of your future. I think being an entrepreneur and being a founder is the one thing in this world that you'll get exactly what you put into it. And to me, that's the only way I want to live. If you look around you at the way the economy and the world is developing, can you point to a business that you don't think will be here in five years? Shared workspace. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Finally, where can we all find more about you and learn more about True Local? Social websites, etc. What's your commercial? Yeah, absolutely. So for True Local, you can find us obviously www.truelocal.ca. Our Instagram is at True Local. Our Twitter is at True Local. Our TikTok is at True Local. Um, for myself personally, you can find me on LinkedIn under Mark Lafleur. And then for any information on Emerge, same thing. You can find them on Emerge Commerce and on LinkedIn uh, as well as Instagram. Thank you. Mark LaFleur, CEO, co-founder, True Local, truelocal.ca. Mark, thank you for being a guest on the Movers and Shakers podcast. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Until next time, I'm Robert Gold, managing partner of Bennett Gold LLP, chartered accountants and CPAs in Toronto. If you want to know what a great CPA firm can do for your accelerating business, check us out at bennettgold.ca. See you next time in the morning, everyone, and good night. Big shoot, Ontario. And that's a wrap for this episode of the DMZ Movers and Shakers podcast. Make sure you subscribe and follow our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at dmz.ryerson.ca for more tips and tools designed to support your business. Until next time.